You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris. Got a lot to do today, so I'll just jump right in with a few recommendations and notes and that kind of thing. Uh, First, I want to recommend Charles Cooper's new DVD series uh, on the book of Revelation. He has put out a four-DVD series, which is basically going through the book of Revelation. And as many of you may know, I highly respect Charles Cooper's Uh, work and the way that he interprets scripture. It's greatly impacted a lot of the things that I talk about and believe. And I think that even if you disagree with him on certain points, one thing that you can respect about Charles Cooper is that he is very consistent and thorough in the way that he interprets scripture. He himself was a professor of hermeneutics. That's the methodology for how you interpret the Bible at Moody Bible Institute, a very prestigious Uh, evangelical university so uh, you can at least glean some information about interpreting revelation in a very sober way from his uh, series though I haven't watched this particular series I have gone through certain studies with him on the book of revelation and have been as I said greatly impacted by them so you can go to his website which is revelationaboutchrist.com let me See if I am getting that right. Revelation. Yeah, revelationaboutchrist.com. And you can buy the four DVD set there. I think it's something like $56 or somewhere in that neighborhood. Also, I wanted to mention I just now uploaded a brand new version of the uh, app Turboverse which is an app that helps you memorize scripture in a very unique way, I think, in a very effective way that uh, we developed with uh, myself and my friend Chris from Australia. And we have uh, uh, been excited about this new version because it does fix a particular problem that didn't affect too many people, but it was an issue that needed to be addressed. So it's way better. Um, One of the issues with that is that every time you upload a new version of the app, uh, all the rankings kind of disappear because none of the reviews and, and rankings are uh, are counted towards the new version, if that makes sense. So so it basically drops off the face of the App Store for a while until uh, until it's downloaded more and, and uh, rated and reviewed more. So if you want to help, you can certainly go to turboverse.com and download the new app for Android devices. And uh, we hope to have the iPhone, iTunes app out soon and also in other versions. I just now finally heard back from some of the other uh, people that I've been asking to uh, the other publishers of Bible versions, and so that's underway as well. Also, a quick note on the book False Christ. I've been very pleased with the reception of it so far. There's been a number of instances of people writing that have said you know, things like, I've changed my view about this, and that's the that's the hard thing that I was hoping would happen with this book. That they would consider it uh, logical and 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 
matching up with scripture to the point that they would be willing to do the very, very hard thing of change any long-held view they may have had about it and at least consider it as a possibility. That is, I can't overstate how very hard that is. And it's kind of odd that uh, in the area of eschatology, which has a lot of ambiguity in certain places, that there is such strong opinions that uh, people will dogmatically defend a position even if their argumentation isn't, you know, quite uh, up to par or can withstand uh, criticism. And so I've been very pleased. Some some people, very prominent people that have written and published uh, contrary opinions about these issues, the Antichrist, before have done an about face. I mean, these are very prominent people that I know a lot of you would know. And that's been, I mean, that was my goal with this book, but... Uh, to see it happen has been a very encouraging thing. I just got one today, an email from a guy who is a Hebrew scholar who whose emphasis is on the book of Daniel. In fact, he was asked to write the uh, volume on Daniel for the upcoming 44-volume uh, commentary on the Bible produced by Logos Bible Software. This is a guy who spent his whole life studying Daniel, basically, or at least his whole ministry and he wrote saying that, you know, there are a lot of things he's got to reconsider, and especially regarding Daniel eleven forty through 45 and the covenant. And I was just, just blown away by that because here's a guy who is a Hebrew scholar that really knows what he's talking about. And I was um, just so surprised that he would be willing to uh, reconsider that. And uh, indeed he has. So that's the kind of thing I've, I've been excited about with the book. And I just want to mention briefly that I... I encourage that not just with other people, but with myself. I think that my record shows that I have uh, been willing to change my mind about things that I have believed in the past and spoken publicly about in the past. And that hasn't changed. I mean, I would, I will honestly get rid of all this stuff, like burn all the books if, if it's wrong. I, I don't want to be just another drop in the bucket of speculative stuff about the end times. Um, that's the last thing on my mind. I mean, what 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 use is any of this if it's not uh, true? I mean, it doesn't have to be completely and totally true. But uh, as far as you know, every detail that I mention or anything like that. But if the basic thesis is correct, then that's you know the point. And if it's not, then there's no use in any of this stuff. I don't want to have such a stake in anything that I've done in terms of uh, podcast videos or books or anything like that that I'm. Um, sort of dogmatically stuck to that and I've talked about that in the past and I just want you to know that uh, if any criticisms come up that um, that are deal breakers then there's no getting around that and uh, I want to be intellectually honest and mature enough to say look it's wrong I'll move on and uh, so anyway that's that okay another thing I wanted to talk about was Bible prophecy conferences and it's something that I am encouraged about to see Bible prophecy conferences. There's uh, some going on right now. They're really big deals and really well attended. And I think that is great and shows the interest in Bible prophecy that's out there. Um, but I wanted to run something by you to get your opinion on it. And that's basically, I wonder what the interest would be in Bible prophecy conferences that are really geared more towards inclusive uh, being inclusive of other views that 
perhaps are even more in a in a debate kind of setting or maybe a roundtable kind of setting. I, I received an email recently that said uh, what he would like to see, because there's so much uh, di- so many divergent views in Bible prophecy, is to get some of the prominent Bible prophecy people together with some really good questions and just kind of lock them in a room and 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 tell them to get it all straightened out. And while I think that's probably not uh, going to happen, I do think that um, certain conferences could be set up with that idea in mind. It could even be based around particular issues and bringing different ideas. And that kind of thing has been done before, but um, not on a really big scale. And I'd also like to see perhaps, um, I don't know how to say this, perhaps more um, Bible teaching and really wrestling with uh, the text in Bible prophecy conferences. I, I don't have a an issue with some of the speculative stuff. You know, I know a lot of the stuff going on in Bible prophecy conferences are about uh, the Nephilim question or UFOs and things like that, but I'm not sure that that necessarily has to do with Bible prophecy. It is a theory that uh, the Nephilim are coming back. I personally don't agree with that, but if they aren't, then there's no real need to have that be a part of a Bible prophecy conference. But uh, then again, if it's true, then it then it should be. So there's that question in itself. I mean, do we need to debate whether this is an issue that concerns Bible prophecy? I mean, the alien question in itself has uh, very little biblical support, and I think that it's kind of uh, I don't want to I don't want to say anything against necessarily that kind of idea. It's not really my my goal here. It's just to say that I would like to see better Bible conferences on a big scale. Something that was not geared toward a particular uh, uh, viewpoint necessarily, and not just get people in there that have different viewpoints for the sake of getting people with different viewpoints. If you were going to do that, it would have to be really focused on particular issues. It would have to be really well thought out in terms of 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 how to structure it and what questions to ask and all that kind of stuff. But I just. I just think that Bible prophecy conferences could be different and and more of people like wrestling with ideas there instead of, uh, I mean, you could have a Bible prophecy conference that just had the complete right idea, you know, the right true explanation of everything, and they just had uh, presentations in which they came and told you more about that right idea. That would be, you know, an ideal world. But I think that there needs to be an admission of... of, um, different views and a serious conferences should be a wrestling with those issues people with their bibles out asking questions wrestling with the pros and cons hearing both sides of the story the bible says that uh, you know when you hear one side of the issue it sounds right until the other person comes up and cross-examines him and i'm not suggesting necessarily a debate bible conference but something with a little more um, of that of that spirit in it, the kind of idea of 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 testing things and and determining which is true after hearing two sides of the story. And let me be clear that I, I personally don't have any interest in setting something like this up. I guess that's a little hypocritical, but uh, I don't think I have the skill set necessary. The, these things, setting up conferences even on a small scale, are a major burden. I mean, they are. I've seen lots of people just go through a very tough time when when setting these things up. It's a logistical nightmare. 
and uh, I just don't feel like that's where I need to put my efforts, uh, probably because I have sort of a natural aversion to those things anyway, and a lot of the networking that has to go on there. I turn down a lot of the conferences more than I accept any, so it's not something I enjoy doing, but it's something that I think that uh, should be done. And so I wanted to just put that out there in case anybody was interested in it. I do think it should be on a really big scale, and I know that costs a lot of money. But I would even suggest that I think something like this, if there was interest enough, if my hunch is correct, that people would uh, be interested in something that was um, uh, marketed like this, I guess you could say, then you could probably even do something like a Kickstarter campaign um, that would explain it well, maybe put a video on there that explains the the goals of the conference and uh, fund it that way, at least in part. But anyway, just some musings that I wanted to put out there for anybody that may be interested. All right, with all that said, let's move on to question number one. All right, Josh asks, um, I've heard several preachers over the years trying to inject America into Bible prophecy. I've thoroughly enjoyed your work, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this. My opinion has changed some, but as of now, I don't think America is in the picture at all. I may be missing something in the scriptures, but I just don't see us there. My theory is that we will implode as a nation to the point where we are no longer a major player in world affairs. That's the only scenario I can make sense out of. If we're a major power during the end, why are we not mentioned? Surely, as Israel's strongest ally, we would be right in the middle of everything. Okay, so this is a really good question, Josh. Thanks for writing in. And I would agree with you that I don't see America in Bible prophecy, at least not anything that is uh, clear. Uh, I'm going to take this question in a few different directions, though, and suggest that it's possible that we could be in there, and I'll suggest a place that that could be. But uh, as far as the theories that, as you say, are trying to inject America into Bible prophecy, I've not yet, yet come across anything that is uh, convincing. And there are a lot of them out there, and there are a lot of different ones out there. A lot of uh, contradictory ways to get America into Bible prophecy. And so far, and, and I'm, I'm not... I don't have any, you know, uh, preconceived idea about this. I mean, if it's in there, then it's in there. But so far, I don't see anything that uh, makes sense. Um, so, well, I said that it's possible that America is in there, and where could that be? And for this, I want to go a little off the beaten path here. I think that we need to consider the idea that global governance does seem to be an agenda of some sort, or at least uh, there's something going on with, uh, you know, what what people call sometimes a conspiracy or the New World Order about this idea that seems to be uh, a hand moving us in the direction of uh, getting uh, a global governance or at least something like a global governance together for uh, whatever purpose. And so I think that I think that that's a real thing, that there is something going on there. We can't just um, say that that doesn't exist. Now, at that point, you could say, well, perhaps that's going on completely independently of Bible prophecy. Uh, evil men and men that love power always want more power. And if there are powerful men out there, it could be just a very natural human thing for them to uh, do all these uh, political and military 
machinations to get uh, more power and that would logically mean controlling more territory and there's a limited amount of territory as they say land is the only thing that they're not making any more of so that's just the logical progression of that so we can consider that the new world orders if you want to call it that their um, agenda is just based on a very basic thing the other side of it is that perhaps there is an evil hand that for some reason or another is uh, building up this system for some uh, satanic ends and that uh, satanic end would naturally be for the Antichrist which as the Bible tells us is kind of the culmination of, of, of Satan's plan he's kind of got all his eggs into one basket as it were with the Antichrist at least as the end times are concerned so does this global governance push have anything to do with the Antichrist when we look at the Antichrist's um, place of origin it's a very difficult area of scripture this is where uh, Daniel tells us that the the beast comes from something with ten kings and I've looked at this a lot of different ways, and I think that you can see uh, this a lot of different ways. Either he comes from one place, it's not necessarily a country, all we know is that there's ten kings. He either comes from one, let's call it a country just for the sake of argument, one country with ten kings, or it could just as easily, as far as I understand it, be interpreted as ten nations, each with their separate king. We would kind of consider that a coalition like a, a European Union or the United Nations or something like that. But none of those have ten kings. I know people have always said, you know, the Club of Rome and all these things. Hal Lindsey um, uh, has been notable for that and others. So I think that either of those are possible. But when trying to determine exactly where this ten king thing comes from, it gets really difficult. I don't think that you can make a definitive case as to what this political military entity is. But I would say this, that it seems that the Antichrist himself does not create this thing. The thing that he, this ten king thing, is something that he uses and kind of does a coup d'etat of. It talks about him subduing three of the kings and rising to prominence and boastful words and, this, and so on and seems to eventually control this entity. Um, in Revelation 13, we see he is uh, fully formed in that entity in, in one sense. So, it, in, And I think that it, it suggests that he has gotten complete control over that thing at that point. But he didn't create it himself. He used it. So what it sounds like I'm going uh, uh, going here or is that um, that America could be a part of that ten nation thing. And I think that there is something, I believe that whatever this is, you can make a case that it probably is in the West. And I say that because we see the Antichrist warring with people from the uh, North, South, and East which suggests, though it's not conclusive at all, that he is coming from somewhere in the West. And since I also believe that Daniel 8 says he must come from one of the areas, one of the four areas of the generals of Alexandria, so Macedonia, Thrace, uh, Egypt, or the Ptolemaic Empire, the Seleucid Empire, 
that I think that you have to put him somewhere in that area, which is, you know, in Europe or or the uh, the Middle East. There's a, there's an area which kind of encompasses a lot of that area. Um, could be, you know, in, a, in Syria, it could be Greece, Macedonia. I think that there's some options there, but none of those are America. So on one hand, I would say you can't have the Antichrist himself, like, be an American president or anything like that. There has to be some connection, as far as him personally, in my view, to that area, one of the four Alexandrian uh, empires, Macedonia, Thrace, uh, and the rest of it. It could be, you know, all the, any one of those things, including Egypt or uh, Syria. So the the question is amb- ambiguous in that sense. But here we come back to the to the New World Order idea. I I think it's important to wrestle with the idea that we don't see anything that really fits with this ten nation thing right now. And I've looked around, you know, tried to see how many rulers, you know, are particular countries, and is there any coalition that, and, and there's been a huge thing about that. You know, well, the European Union could do it if they got rid of, like, half their members, and, you know, it used to be for a while the Club of Rome, and then then the United Nations, and there's lots of theories, and they all essentially rest on, well, it, it's not that and right now, but maybe it could if certain people left and all this other stuff, and that's certainly possible. But I envision perhaps, that the culmination of whatever is going on with the uh, global push may end up may end up becoming this ten-nation thing. But it's important to distinguish here. I've seen people talk about this idea before, that, that this global governance idea could have something to do with this ten-king thing. But it's not necessary. In fact, it's not even not necessary. I don't think that it 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 is a, a world government. That is to say that everything in the world is controlled by this ten king thing. I think that that would be an error. And again, one of the reasons is because that it, that Antichrist clearly is at war with three parts of the compass during that time. So you can't. So whatever this is 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 not fully formed in terms of controlling the whole world. But I can possibly envision something that uh, encompasses Europe and America and maybe, you know, other parts of the Americas as a part of like a unified thing that we don't see yet that could arise in the future. Um, That being said, I don't think we need to limit our searching for this based on, you know, well, it, it might come together at some point. We still need to be vigilant and be looking at the political uh, stuff that's going on and making sure that it's not happening right now, you know, right under our noses. But so far, nothing that I've seen makes sense in that regard. So to answer the question, it is possible that America is part of that 10 king thingy, but uh, the Antichrist himself, I don't believe, will be uh, from America. I don't think that that's a possibility. It's just that America could be there. So what does that mean for America? Well, it, it means basically, I guess, it could be similar to what it is now, although you'd have to admit that things would be quite different if we were, uh, for whatever reason, for security reasons, which is typically the reason why uh, uh, republics fall and democracies fall that we give up a lot of the uh, sovereignty and rights and things and become part of a a greater whole. 
so that would change, and who knows what kind of stuff could be going on between now and then, if indeed that's a correct view. All right, hope I didn't ramble too much on that one. Let's go to question number two. All right, this comes from Aaron, and it's some critiques of the Psalm 83 war debunked that I put out as a video, but it's also a chapter in the book False Christ. And I learned through uh, further discussions with Aaron that he wasn't really a proponent of the Psalm 83 theory, but he had these challenges to the theory. And the reason I want to address them is that I've heard similar uh, critiques of the Psalm 83 war debunked uh, section of the book that I thought I would just go ahead and address here uh, to do so publicly and to uh, kind of be a one-size-fits-all catch for a lot of these criticisms. Um, one of the things that has come up a lot is that he has in his number two, which is that you would find, quote, many prophecies have a current or near partial fulfillment while having an ultimate fulfillment, usually in the first or second coming of Christ. So there seems to be this idea that I am not looking at Psalm 83 as being a possible partial fulfillment. Uh, and if I did so, then I would see that it was a prophecy. And I would say to that that I am all for partial fulfillments. I think that um, there are many places in, in Scripture that a partial fulfillment is the only uh, logical conclusion. But I would say that when determining whether or not a passage is just a, uh, just a passage describing something that's happening in the present day and has no future fulfillment, or that it is indeed a, a prophecy which is, should be considered a double fulfillment, or whatever the case, it should be taken individually. So, for example, when I'll argue that a, a prophecy is a, a dual fulfillment, one of the main ways that you do so is by arguing that this has to be a dual fulfillment because, for example, Antiochus didn't do all these things. I mean, in history, these things are, are impossible f to be fulfilled uh, by Antiochus. Or in Matthew 24, with the abomination of desolation, some people say that it's all about 70 AD. And the argumentation there is, well, it, it can't all be about 70 AD because, number one, Jesus is telling people to flee from when they see the abomination of desolation, and if, in their view, the abomination of desolation was when the Romans entered the Holy of Holies with their banner or whatever, then that makes no sense, because if in history, when the Romans entered the temple, uh, they had killed everybody. I mean, the, when they finally breached the walls of the city, it was a bloodbath. People were sick and dying. Very few people were left to fight, but the, those that did were all killed or captured. Um, they were already besieged, so there wasn't anywhere for anybody to flee. They weren't just going to like run away from the Roman legions that were completely surrounding the city, and by that point had breached the walls. And if and if they, as per Jesus's warnings, they had to wait till the quote-unquote abomination of desolation happened, which was when they entered the the the, the temple, which at that point was being held for like a, a last stand of like women and children. There it, there wasn't anybody to heed Jesus' warnings to when you see the abomination of desolation, flee, don't go back and get your coat, and the rest of it. I mean, it, was, it, it makes that a completely uh, useless warning for anybody. And to continue on that a little bit, I think that Paul interprets Matthew 24 in light of 
as Jesus told him to do, when you see the the abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whoever reads, let him understand. Paul did indeed look at what Daniel had wrote about the abomination of desolation, which he wrote about at least three times. And Paul came to the conclusion that the abomination of desolation that Jesus was talking about was as he interpreted it in Second Thessalonians 2, when you see man of sin sitting in the in the temple and the rest of it. Uh, declaring himself to be God, he, he says he he is clearly interpreting that as an, the Antichrist sitting in the temple, declaring himself to be God, a man doing it. And so Paul Paul's Second Thessalonians uh, reference to the abomination of desolation is virtually impossible to see as the Romans entering a place or whatever. In addition to that, uh, I would say that that Jesus continues to go on and say, you know, after the tribulation of those days. You're going to see me coming back in the clouds of heaven, essentially the the rapture, gathering the people. Uh, you know, clearly that didn't happen in 70 AD. And most people, if they're somewhat honest, although preterists would not do this, but but some would say, okay, well that didn't happen. Jesus didn't come back in the clouds and gather the elect and all that stuff. But you know, but that's very difficult to divorce from the context because Jesus is saying after the tribulation of those days, what days? The days after the persecution of the abomination of desolation. So anyway, that's the kind of argumentation that you make when you say this is a dual fulfillment or this kind of thing can't have happened. So this idea that I'm not considering the possibility of uh, partial fulfillment or dual fulfillment with the Psalm 83 debunked, I would just say absolutely I am. In fact, that's what Bill Salas and others are trying to do with their argumentation as we're going to look at about Assyria or Gabal. Their argumentation is 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 structured in the way that you would structure an argument to to say that it is a dual fulfillment. So Bill Salas says that Gabal, for example, wasn't in the fray and that Assyria wasn't in the picture. And because in his view those those two places mentioned in Psalm eighty three weren't possible to be uh, involved in, a, in an immediate context, and it must be a dual f- prophecy. And that's why my counter-argumentation is that Gabal definitely was in the fray. I mean, Gabal is mentioned as being at the exact same time that this happened. They were uh, helping with the building of, of Solomon's temple, which is right at the same time, probably before the time. So they're in the fray. In fact, you have Assyria, the very one that he says is not in the fray, visiting Gabal, we know from Assyrian records, before this time. So, so yeah, Assyria is in the fray. I think that there's the, the argument that a lot of people make with the Assyria not being in the fray thing is because at that point, Assyria, just out of the Dark Ages, was uh, had a receded kingdom to a degree. In fact, Assyria was one of the only places that survived the Dark Ages intact. It's one of the sort of success stories of the Dark Ages, that, though they uh, receded back their borders a little bit and sort of focused on uh, a smaller area during that uh, that time. But they weren't out of the picture by any means, and, and some of the ways that we have to suggest that is, as I mentioned, um, you know, Assyria being involved with Gabal, uh, in you know, on paper, Assyrian records, not to mention uh, kings from uh, Jerusalem, particularly Jehu and, and, and Ahab, or I think it's Ahab, that were visiting um, Assyria just after this time. But nevertheless, that's a different idea. The main thing here is that certainly partial fulfillments are, are uh, a real thing, and I'm not disregarding that, but yet we still have to have good reason to suggest it's a partial fulfillment. In other words, you don't just look at anything in the Bible and say, well, partial fulfillments exist, therefore this could be a partial fulfillment. There needs to be additional argumentation. 
which is what Salas tried to do with saying that Gabal wasn't in the picture. And the counter-argumentation to that is, yes, they were. Okay, so number one is, if you were to start from the manner in which existing scripture, including the Psalms, have been interpreted prophetically, you would find that many, including those of Asaph, were in fact prophetic, without claiming to be so or appearing so in context. Now, this is based on when I was arguing that there is no prophecy in Psalm 83. I said things like, some of the ways that we can determine whether or not a passage is prophecy is uh, that there's some kind of clear reference to, to Christ or clear reference to the millennial kingdom, which clearly ne- hasn't happened yet. Uh, or uh, there's any number of ways in which we can determine whether a passage is prophecy. That's, that's how we study the Bible. There's a lot of normal criteria. For example, there are occasions when, when God interjects in a psalm and says, you know, in the psalmist is sort of speaking for God, a response from God that this, such and such will happen and that kind of thing. There's a host of ways that we can tell whether or not a passage is prophetic, but the argument is that none of those ways appear in the Psalm 83 passage. I mean, there isn't anything that would give us the impression that we're dealing with a prophecy by any of the normal, natural ways that we discover whether or not a passage is prophetic. I mentioned that Bill Salas's argument against that idea was to point to a passage in Second Chronicles which mentions that Asaph, the writer of Psalm 83, was a quote-unquote seer. And I would say to that, yeah, I mean, the fact that he is a, a seer or a prophet is true, but it doesn't make everything that he wrote a prophecy. Each individual thing that he wrote, each individual psalm or part of a psalm, still has to rest on its own merit. You still have to discover whether it's a prophecy of the future or not by the normal methods. Just because Asaph was a prophet or just because uh, Daniel was a prophet doesn't necessarily mean that the lion's den or or any things that uh, Daniel wrote were prophecies. You You still have to apply argumentation to it. But he says that if you look at other psalms of Asaph, for instance, that you'll find that they were in fact prophetic without claiming to be so or appearing so in their context. Well, I'm not sure exactly which ones he's talking about. Um, I would certainly say that you can find prophetic places in, in psalms written by Asaph, but we know that those are prophecies because of reasons. I mean, because of some reason or another. But when you give the caveat that they're not claiming to be so or appearing so in their context... Well, there would need to be more justification of how you know that a a passage that has no appearance of being a prophecy or a a passage that doesn't claim to be a prophecy is a prophecy. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, you still have to apply uh, the normal ways, even if Asaph was a prophet. Okay, number three, he says, you seem rather... Uh, easily to rather easily assume that Asaph, a temple musician, is privy to the counsels of the surrounding enemy nations, and overnaturalize the passage in general, and further assume that God's only purpose for recording these counsels is to give substance to a prayer against them. So what he's saying here is that Asaph in Psalm 83 is saying, "Oh Lord, you know all these nations surrounding us that He names. They're they're consulting together. They're they're conspiring together. They're they're essentially planning our demise." And I argue that that's all they're doing. He's essentially saying to God, "Look, all these nations are talking really bad about us. They're saying bad things. They're even getting together and uh, forming coalitions and stuff." Lord, please help us. That's sort of the thumbnail of what what's happening. And his critique here is saying that. Um, I am assuming that Asaph is privy 
to this information. That is to say that he knows that, for example, Ammon and Moab are conspiring with Assyria. And he's saying, how could Asaph know that uh, if he wasn't, uh, uh, you know, I mean, he's not going to know that just being a regular guy in Israel. Well, I don't think that Asaph was a regular guy in Israel, but let's just assume for the sake of argument that he was just a, 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 a nobody in Israel, just a common person. I think that is assuming quite a bit in itself to say that, and he goes on to say that uh, this was a divine uh, revelation to Asaph that these nations were, in fact, conspiring against Israel. And while that's possible, I don't think it is the best explanation. He says that the explanation that he would have just known, that I sort of uh, propose um, inadvertently, is is overnaturalizing. But and I don't like I don't like it when people overnaturalize things by any means, but sometimes the most natural explanation is the best explanation. And I would submit here that you don't need to have a divine revelation in order to know that the the, the nations surrounding Israel were conspiring against them. It's important to remember that these nations in Psalm eighty three, at the time that David or that Asaph was writing this psalm were a part of Israel. I mean, David and Solomon, well, not Solomon, but David conquered these areas and it was expanded upon later. I mean, these were nations that were uh, considered a part of Israel and they weren't happy about it at all. If you read through uh, uh, the Old Testament, which I've been doing recently uh, in an audio format anyway, is is that it's a constant battle with these people that were technically in Israel but didn't like it and were rebelling and so on. They weren't really good citizens of Israel, but they were citizens of Israel. And since, for example, Moab and Ammon were in Israel, I, I can't, and they're outspoken about their dislike for Israel, I don't see any reason for this information to not be known about uh, uh, to the common people. So I guess we're kind of at a stalemate in the sense of would this kind of rumors and information be well known or does it have to be divinely given? And I would say even if the idea that uh, certain nations were making coalitions wasn't a uh, um, you know common knowledge, it still, let's say it was something that God gave Asaph just to let him know that they were conspiring, it still doesn't invalidate the idea that nothing happened. The They were just conspiring. This was not a war that happened. Uh, even if it was divinely given to Asaph, the, the points still stand. There is no prophecy in Psalm 83. There is no war in Psalm 83. And the arguments that were made to suggest that there is a prophecy and a war are not good arguments. And not to mention the other uh, points that I made, for example, that this kind of prayer is probably one of the most consistent and prevalent prayers in the Psalms. Oh, Lord, deliver me from my enemies. They all want to kill me. Please help me. Please help me is like one out of every three Psalms. And out of those one out of every three Psalms that are saying similar things, nobody considers them prophecies. Um, or very, very few of them, unless there's some other reason. But the point is, is that this is a consistent type of, of psalm that all of a sudden we have taken Psalm 83 and say, this is this particular one is, is a war that needs to happen in the future, even though there is no prophecy of a war and there's no picture of a war or anything else. Okay, that was kind of a long, long-winded thing there. 
And I hope I didn't bore you with that, but the main critique that I have been getting from the Psalm 83 War Debunked is this idea that, don't you know, it's a dual prophecy or that kind of uh, argumentation, um, as if I don't uh, believe in dual prophecies or that kind of thing. So, uh, so far I haven't heard any critiques that make me sit down and say, okay, I've got to rethink this. But as I mentioned before, I'm willing to rethink it. I'm willing to change my mind, totally erase this from the book or or whatever needs to happen if there is good argumentation against it. So uh, I am open to that if you want to email me about it, and uh, we'll go from there. All right, let's move on to question number three. Okay, this question is about the lost ten tribes of Israel, so-called lost ten tribes of Israel. And this particular view takes a lot of different forms in different sects. So, for example, the British Israelism, that is the belief that uh, the British are the lost ten tribes, and that's actually more prominent than you might think, as well as certain things like the Hebrew-Israelite idea and some other issues that really incorporate this concept of the lost ten tribes. So, you may know from your biblical history that uh, the Assyrians took the the northern kingdom of Israel, which had ten tribes in it, and took them away captive before Judah, which encompassed, uh, well, the, the southern part of the kingdom, but it, it had, of course, the tribe of Judah, but also the tribe of Dan in it as well that was a part of it. So the northern kingdom uh, and the ten tribes were taken away by Assyria before the Babylonians took away the tribe of Judah a little later on. And they took that, they took Judah, uh, the people that were in Judah, let's say, to uh, Babylon, or at least a lot of them, to Babylon. And those people uh, grew and, 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 you know, thrived to an extent in Babylon, and then came back to Israel after Cyrus gave them the okay to do so. So if you were to just follow that kind of line of thought, then you would think, well, all ten tribes, you know, um, Manasseh and the rest of them, were, were just lost. You know, there's no more of those tribes, and all that's left that we can know of is uh, those from the tribe of Judah, and to a lesser extent, Dan. Now, the problem with this is that the Bible, in a lot of places, makes mention of the fact that representatives from all ten tribes tribes, communities from all ten tribes, were in the region of Judah, both before and after all the captivities. And one of the reasons that they did this, as we'll go through some of these uh, uh, instances in Scripture to to show you how much Scripture uh, convinces us of this fact, but... um, but one of the reasons they did it initially is after the the original split of the northern uh, tribes and the southern tribe of Judah, there was a lot of apostasy going on, or I guess you quasi-apostasy going on in the northern kingdoms. For example, Jeroboam set up a golden calf worship. How he could think that was a good idea, I have no idea. But nevertheless, he did it because uh, they, in their northern kingdoms, didn't have a Mount Moriah to... Uh, to make sacrifices on. So, even at that point, we see a lot of people who recognize, number one, golden calf worship is probably not a good idea, and number two, God was pretty specific that he only wanted sacrifices uh, on on Mount Moriah, so we're just going to go on and live in Judah where things are uh, a little more doctrinally correct. So we have instances of Scripture telling us that that happened, 
And then lots and lots and lots of supplemental scriptural support tell us that, as I mentioned, representatives from all the quote-unquote lost ten tribes were in the region of Judah, uh, both before and after this. And so I'm going to to quote and just read a little bit from an article called The Mystery of the Myth, The Lost Ten Tribes. I'm going to start about halfway through the article and just read a little bit. Now, there are a lot of footnotes here that give the scriptural references, and I'll make a note when there's a footnote, but I won't necessarily read the scriptural references. I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just encourage you to check it out for yourself. Again, the title of the article is Mystery of the Myth, The Lost Ten Tribes. It says, before the Assyrian captivity, substantial numbers of the northern tribes had identified themselves with the house of David. The rebellion of Jeroboam and subsequent crisis caused many to repudiate the northern kingdom and unite with the southern kingdom in a common alliance to the house of David and a desire to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. Footnote. In 930 BC, Jeroboam ruled the northern kingdom from his capital in Samaria. Footnote. When Jeroboam when Jeroboam turned the northern kingdom to idolatry, the Levites and others who desired to remain faithful migrated south to Rehoboam. Footnote. Horrified that Jeroboam had set up a rival religion with, a golden, with golden calf worship at Bethel and Dan, many northerners moved south, knowing that the only place acceptable to God was the temple on Mount Moriah. Footnote. Those who favored idolatry migrated north to Jeroboam. Later, when Asa reigned as the king of the south, another great company came from the north. Footnote. Years after the deportation by Assyria, King Hezekiah of Judah issued a call to all Israel to come and worship in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. Footnote. Eighty years later, King Josiah of Judah also issued a call, and an offering for the temple was received from Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel. Footnote. Eventually, all 12 tribes were represented in the south. God even addressed the 12 tribes in the south, quote, speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, footnote. The, quote, tribe of Judah, 2 Kings 17:18 et al., is used idiomatically for the southern kingdom, footnote. When encountering the tribal designations, it is important to distinguish between the territories allocated to the tribes and the people themselves. The Northern Kingdom Falls. In 724 BC, Shalmaneser V besieged Samaria for three years. King Hoshea of Israel attempted to revolt against, uh, against paying Assyrians annual tribute money. A treaty, treaty with Pharaoh of Egypt did not help. Footnote. And Samaria, Jer- Jeroboam's capital, fell in 722 BC with Sargon II seizing power in 721. The Assyrians implemented their famous policy of mixing conquered peoples to keep them from organizing a revolt. Israelite captives were mixed with Persians and others, and strangers from far-off lands were uh, resettled in Samaria. The resulting mixed quasi-Jewish populations became the Samaritans. Footnote. You can read about this fall in 2 Kings 17. Not all from the northern kingdom were deported. Archaeologists have uncovered annals of the Assyrian Sargon, in which he tells that he carried away only 27,290 people and 50 chariots. Footnote. Population estimates of the northern kingdom at the time ranged from 400,000 to 500,000, that is, less than one-twentieth were deported. Mostly the leadership from the capital, Samaria, the rest of the northern kingdoms were taken by Assyria as slaves, which were a valuable commodity. It is, dis- it is difficult to view the Assyrians as careless enough to let their captives wander to Europe. When the Babylonians take over Assyria, 
the descendants of the ten tribes were probably against commingling with the, capital, the captives of Judah. When the northern kingdom went into captivity, 722 BC, all twelve tribes were also represented in the south. When the Babylonians took the southern kingdom into captivity in 586 BC, members of all twelve tribes of Israel were involved. Isaiah, prophesying to Judah, refers to them as the house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, Isaiah 48.1 and 12-14. Post-captivity terminology. After the Babylonian captivity, the terms Jew and Israelite are used interchangeably. Ezra calls the returning remnant Jews eight times and Israel forty times. Now remember, he's not supposed to call Israel Israel because that was idiomatic of the northern kingdom, but he's calling them by Israel regardless. Ezra also speaks of, quote, all Israel, Ezra 270, 311, 835, 1025. Nehemiah uses the term Jew 11 times and Israel 22 times. Nehemiah 2 speaks of, quote, all Israel being back in the land, Nehemiah 12:47. The remnant who returned from Babylon is represented as, quote, the nation, Malachi 1, 1 et al. The same is true in the New Testament. Our Lord said to have offered himself to the nation, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 10, 5 through 6, 15, 24. Tribes other than Judah are mentioned specifically in the New Testament as being represented in the land. Footnote. Anna knew her tribal identity was of the tribe of Asher, Luke 2.36. Paul knew he was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew and an Israelite, Romans 11.1. The New Testament speaks of Israel 75 times and uses the word Jew 174 times. At the Feast of Pentecost, Peter cries, Ye men of Judah, Acts 2.14, Ye men of Israel, Acts 2.21, and, quote, all the house of Israel, Acts 2.36. Ezekiel 36 and 37, the dry bones vision, declares that Judah, Jews of Israel, ten tribes, shall be joined as one in the regathering. This is true today. The total physical descendants were not uh, the people who to whom the promises were made in Romans. And again, I would just encourage you to check this out. Again, the, the article is named Mystery of the Myth, the Lost Ten Tribes. So the idea that there are lost ten tribes is not a biblical concept. The Bible tells us repeatedly that all twelve tribes are, res- are represented in Judah before the captivity of Babylon and afterwards, which is a death knell to the idea that there is no more representation for these tribes. And uh, as you mentioned, the uh, the representation clearly in those tribes in the New Testament period is evident as well. All right, I know that can be a little bit uh, tedious listening to me reading something, so we'll move on to the last thing that I wanted to talk about today. And as many of you know, I've been reading and trying to figure out um, information about the subject of, of how to get out of a spiritual slump and get back your joy and zeal for God. And I've been reading a ton of stuff and a lot of different opinions about it, and there's so much good information out there. Um, and you could look at it a lot of different ways. I mean, there's all these spiritual disciplines that uh, we're told if we if we practice them by our you know sheer willpower, whether that's prayer, Bible reading, and these kinds of things, uh, they will help us to get to this place of, uh, of of joy and zeal for God. And I think that there's truth to that. 
but it's not the only thing. That is, if you did nothing else but uh, spend time in prayer every day, that will help you, um, but it's not going to be the only thing. I think that really almost everything that holds us back comes down to one central issue, which is a matter of the heart, uh, something that if you do will make your progress in sanctification virtually effortless and all the other things, all the other spiritual dis disciplines start to fall into place. And the idea I'm talking about here is a submission of yourself and your desires to God as Lord. And the degree in which you do that in your heart is the degree in which you grow. In other words, there are often things in people's life when you get right down to it that are deal breakers of some sort. And they can be things that are, you know, good things like uh, family or, or friends. You know, I have to have friends or I have to make sure I get a wife or that nothing is going to be right. And sometimes in people's life, they can be so strong of this thing that has built up in their life that if they don't get that, then, you know, what good is God if I can't get that thing? Or it can be a sin. You could have everything else in order, but there is this sin that when you think about it, you'll say something like, well, I'm not ready to give that up yet. And that, and sometimes those sins can be very damaging in terms of your spiritual life as well. And so I, you know, Jesus says a lot of times to people who say, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. You know, there's occasions where they're bowing down and worshiping, saying, you know, let's let's do this. I'll be your follower. And on no less than four occasions, Jesus turns people down. And the reason in each of those cases that he turns somebody down is essentially like you have something in your life that is more important to you than me. Uh, for the rich young ruler, it was money. For another guy, it was his family, and, and so on and so forth. There are things that we essentially have in our life that need to be on the table. Jesus says, uh, if any man wants to follow me, he needs to, to, to essentially crucify himself and to take up your cross and follow him. It needs to be all on the table. And I think m much of the time, we have something that we're not willing to put on the table. And that is... On, in one sense, really easy. This is just a matter of the heart. It's something that you have to, to do. But in another sense, to get to that place where you're willing to, you know, think up the, in the case of, you know, whether it's family or wife or, or whatever, think of that mental scenario where that is taken away from you and yet you would still follow Christ and you'd be okay with that or not okay with it, but you would, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't mean that, okay, then, then I don't want God if I can't have that. That's hard to do. In the case of sins, you may intellectually know, look, I need to, to deal with this, but there's a part of you that says, "Not, I'm still going to hold on to it for now. And I don't think until that kind of idea of, look, I'm, I'm done with this. I want to live the life that Christ has for me in, in my soul and in the external life or whatever, uh, until that is crucified and and it's more than just being mentally okay with with losing whatever that is i think it's also this attitude of of lordship in terms of the i mean the biblical concept of somebody being your lord as the bible says you're not your own you're bought with a price and you are christ's and he is your 
Lord, in the medieval sense even. I mean, that, that is a very important concept that I think we take too flippantly. But as I, as I, I think is important to the degree in which you say, look, I got a Lord, I, I need to do this, or I need to glorify him in this, or, or I need to uh, uh, make sure he wouldn't like that, or that's what my Lord wouldn't do that, or whatever, then I think to that degree in which, in which he is your Lord in your life is the degree in, the, in which you'll be sanctified. And all the other things seem to fall into place, and it becomes a lot easier. Um, Tozer says of this, uh, be thou exalted is the language of victorious spiritual experience. Um, it is the key to unlock the door to great treasures of grace. It is, the cent- it is central in the life of God uh, in the soul. Let the seeking man reach the place where life and lips join to say continually, Be thou exalted, and a thousand minor problems will be solved at once. His Christian life ceases to be a, the complicated thing it has been before and becomes the very essence of simplicity. By the exercise of his will he has set his course, and on that course he will stay as if guided by an automatic pilot. If blown off course for a moment by some adverse wind, he will surely return again as if by a secret bent of the soul. I saw a quote on Facebook the other day, and I just tried to look for it, but it's kind of hard to search from old posts on Facebook, but uh, I'll paraphrase it. It said something like, all quote-unquote unbelief is just something that somebody is unwilling to submit to God. That is, they might couch whatever it is in unbelief, but really, in the background, there's something in their life that they don't want to submit to God and 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 sit under His uh, judgment about, and that may be a little extreme, but it kind of illustrates the point that I'm trying to make here. And I also want to say that this is something that, of course, I struggle with too. I, I don't want to ever come across like I've got this all figured out. It's one of the reasons I'm trying to figure this all out. But I think that I have narrowed it down to know what needs to happen to get to the place that I need to get to, that I want to get to. And I know what this feels like in the past in my Christian life. I know what it's like. I've spoken it often as, you know, repentance, the, the idea of of being done with something or, or whatever in, in the case of sins or whatnot, and having that kind of mindset that it's over and you know, in the joy that comes from that uh, heart-level decision of, of giving something to God and, and letting Him take care of it, because that's when the real healing starts. You know, so many people, as I've mentioned before, pray for certain desires or things to be taken from them, but they aren't willing to put it on the table first. It's kind of this transaction that needs to happen first, that you need to be willing to put it on the table. And in the case of something that's good that you are particularly concerned about, let's say a wife or uh, a family or th- those kinds of things that are intrinsically good, but yet they've become such an idol in your life that nothing in your life will be great unless you have that. And therefore, if God doesn't give you that, then God isn't uh, worthy of following. I've seen a lot of times when people come to that place of like, if it's your will, God, then it's your will and I will do uh, whatever I can, uh, even if that doesn't happen. And it's almost like when that that heart-level shift happens, oftentimes he, times he gives them the, the desires of their heart. That's the cool thing about God, is that he isn't just uh, there to, to save you from, from hell or anything. He loves you, and he wants what's best for you. And oftentimes that includes giving you the things that you, the desires of your heart, though uh, you can't 
get those things unless you're willing to give them up. And I think this applies when you look at the Christian church who, and, and just think of it today in, in, in Muslim countries and so on, when converting to Christianity means that not only you lose your family and everybody hates you, but you'll probably be killed for it. I mean, it's a high price to pay. And that's why Jesus puts the bar at you need to be willing to to die for this. I mean, you need to be willing to take up your cross and follow me, an instrument of torture and death. And it needs to be okay with you. I think the extreme is that if if this meant that you didn't get anything that you wanted and instead you were tortured to death, um, then that is the lot that you would accept. And from there, everything else is pretty much a bonus, right? And I think that's what life in, in a submissive relationship to Christ is, is a big bonus. Uh, not to mention all the, the freedom and joy that comes with a life that is being transformed and sanctified. So, yeah, I think this is a very important key to getting to that place uh, where Jesus is your Lord and your life is uh, living to glorify him. And all the other things become peripheral. The word uh, that you're reading, you become uh, more interested in it because you see it's giving you life. And the same thing with prayer and all the other disciplines. They become uh, supplemental to a life that is changed in a submissive attitude and, and heart towards Christ. And that includes any things that maybe you know are holding you back from that and that you're still got your hands pretty tightly gripped on. And you may think, well, you know, I'll just do this a little bit longer and then do it later. That's the big thing. You know, that's the thing that we all struggle with. So um, so at least we know what the problem is and we've got to, to go from there. But I do pray for all of us to grow in Christ and to continually submit our life, our wills, our desires, and our sins to him and let him heal us and provide for us in a way that uh, only he can do. All right, I think that wraps it up for this episode. I want to remind you of a few things. First, I mentioned uh, Charles Cooper's Revelation series DVD, available at the website um, Revelation of Jesus Christ, or no, revelationofjesus.com. I may have that wrong, so double check it. But Charles Cooper's Revelation DVD series, also the TurboVerse app. I could really use your help in uh, downloads and reviews on that app on the Google Play Store, but it's going to be hard to find in Google Play because I just uploaded the new version, making it pretty much fall off the map. So the best way to do that is go to the website, turboverse.com, and clicking on the Google Play uh, button from there. All right, everybody. Oh, yeah, also the idea about the Bible conferences that I mentioned, too. And with that, I will see you next week or next time I get a podcast out. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry, or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. 
Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.